conversation about legal issues that matter to you. Understanding the culture tells you something about how the society develops its understanding of law. It seems like they're protecting our right to privacy with cell phones. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. Pam, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, something called LDF, has played this outsized role in American jurisprudence. If you think of the landmark cases in civil rights, that fund is there in every one. And I know you spent a couple of years as a staff attorney. Yes, and the Supreme Court actually has endorsed the Legal Defense Fund, <laughs> calling it a group that has a corporate, repre- uh, corporate uh, reputation for expertise in presenting difficult cases of civil rights. And some of the most legendary civil rights lawyers of all times have been there. Uh, one of the director counsels was Thurgood Marshall before he became uh, a uh, justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, Jack Greenberg, Julius Chambers, Elaine Jones. I mean, the list goes on and on. And we're really lucky today to have with us the current president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn has been a staff lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund. She has been a professor who wrote groundbreaking scholarship uh, in her job as a professor at the University of Maryland. And uh, the Legal Defense Fund lured her back to become its most recent president and director counsel, where she oversees a staff that does both a lot of litigation and also a lot of policy work of various kinds. So, Sherilyn, we just are so grateful to have you on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Joe? Well, the 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 fund is doing so many important cases. Why don't we ask you to to talk about one cluster or one case just to to bring our listeners along, so to speak. Well, thank you so much. It's true. We do kind of cover the waterfront um, doing a lot of things, but we do it in a very particular way. You know, we, we try to do impact litigation. Every case that we do should have resonance and significance beyond the four corners of that case. It should be something that speaks into uh, structural inequity uh, that affects the communities of people we represent, which are uh, principally African-Americans. Our clients are mostly in the South. Um, I remind people that um, 52% of African-Americans still live in the South. I think people forget that. Uh, It's also the place that has the fewest resources when it comes to the kind of civil rights litigation uh, that we bring. And so we try to be very concentrated. We work in four areas, voting rights, criminal justice, education, and economic justice. And within those areas, we're always trying to look for the sweet spot. You know, we're trying to look for the things that we think will unlock um, opportunity, power, uh, full citizenship for African-Americans. Our voting rights work um, in particular is, you know, really important. And this is work that Pam worked on uh, when she was at the Legal Defense Fund. And she was one of the critical people who trained me when I was a young voting rights lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And um, I think what I learned there in doing that work endures in the work we do today. First of all, we care fiercely about local communities. I think a lot of the talk about voting and political power in our country is a very national conversation. Yeah, and if I could just Mm -hmm. ask you about that a little, because I think that's exactly where the Legal Defense Fund is different Mm -hmm. than, you know, there are lots of organizations that will 
become involved in elections for senator mm-hmm. or governor. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to city councils mm-hmm. or county commissions that every mm-hmm. day affect people's lives, oftentimes the Legal Defense Fund is the only set of lawyers that's who right. will, that's right. will so, be there. That's right. So, you know, if you've never heard of Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana, <laughs> then you maybe haven't heard about, you know, our litigation there challenging the system of electing trial judges uh, in that parish that have kept African Americans from being able to elect a candidate of their choice and that have left them really subject to judges who perhaps don't have their best interests at heart, including a judge who held that position for a very long time as the trial judge in that parish who showed up at a Halloween party in blackface and a prison jumpsuit uh, and handcuffs. Um, you know, very few people are going to take on that case to make sure that African Americans in that parish have an opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. And when did he show up and do this? Um, I want to say, let's see, it's a few years before we filed, so I want to say maybe 2010, 11, something like that. Tell yeah. us tell us about the case a little bit. Well, the method of electing judges in the parish was parish is an at-large method of electing judges, which means it's parish-wide. Uh, African Americans are a sizable portion of the population, but they're not a majority of the population. And because of racially polarized voting, because white vote, voters will not support the candidates of choice of African Americans, uh, black voters are essentially um, uh, barred from being able to elect a candidate of their choice. Um, elsewhere in the state, uh, elections are done by district. Here, they're conti- they continue to be done at large, and so we sued uh, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and we won. Uh, at trial. We just had our argument in the Fifth Circuit. It was an interesting panel. We will see what happens. Uh, but but the point is to, um, you know, judges have such an incredible amount of power. Uh, when we talk to our clients, the people who have power over their lives in these communities are the district attorney and the local judge and the county commission and the town council and the constable and the justices of the peace. You know, as Pam knows, when I Uh, was litigating as a young voting rights attorney, I brought a case challenging judicial elections in uh, Galveston County for justices of the peace and constables. And, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. I thought justices of the peace were the nice people who married people who were eloping, like I saw in the movies. Uh, But they actually have police power. You know, they have the power to issue tickets and they have the power to um, control and, and influence the lives of the people that we represent. So we try to focus on those elections that happen at on the ground uh, at the level where we also think power is built. This is how. you know, African-American uh, leaders uh, begin to take office, begin to develop political power, begin to develop political muscle is from the bottom up, most often in these communities, not from the top down. So one of the things that one of the reasons I asked you about, like, when did this judge yeah. do what he did is the U.S. Supreme Court about five years ago in the Shelby County case said things had changed so much in yeah. the South that we no longer needed one of the most critical pieces mm-hmm. of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5. What are you experiencing in your work now as a result of the Supreme Court saying that jurisdictions in the South no longer need to get approval before they change their election laws? Well, it's it's everything. Um, you know, Section 5 was regarded as, you know, one of the most effective provisions of any civil rights statute ever because it was the one provision that allowed you to get at the discrimination before it happened. And, um, you know, in the Senate report that accompanied the passage of uh, the, the 1965 Act that included Section 5, the Senate was very keenly aware of trying to pass an act that would get not only at the voting discrimination that they could see at that moment, but that would get at what they called ingenious 
uh, voting discrimination that would happen in the future. I mean, they knew the population they were dealing with, and so they they had a plan. And that's what Section 5 was doing. It wasn't perfect. Uh, you know, we had a, a still a robust voting rights docket even when we had Section 5. But it was um, a, a hugely important backstop to be able to get at this discrimination before it happened. And it was cheap because it was an administrative procedure that didn't require litigation. Uh, and so now all of the voting changes that we see, you know, two hours after the Supreme Court's Shelby County decision, as we were walking over to the Department of Justice to meet with then Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, the, the Texas Attorney General tweeted his plan to now re-up the Texas voter ID law, the strictest voter ID law in the country at the time, that they had been unable to impose because of Section 5 just two years before. Uh, the, the Florida Secretary of State said, we're free and clear now. So it, it became a free-for-all. And much of what we're seeing from voter purges to polling place changes and, and closures close to elections uh, to stringent voter ID laws and so forth, all are things that could not have been imposed uh, without preclearance if we still had Section 5. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Sherilyn Eiffel, the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, about the docket of the Legal Defense Fund. Joe? Sherilyn, tell us a little bit about some of the voter uh, uh, ID laws and the polling laws. I know you're active in places like Florida, mm -hmm. where there's uh, almost a new poll tax uh, put in. Uh, the election's coming up. What What's happening in, in these key states? So in Florida, here's a really wonderful story, right, about the a majority of the voters in Florida vote to allow formerly incarcerated persons to be able to vote again. And um, as your listeners probably know, many states have um, laws that prohibit formerly incarcerated people, usually convicted of felonies, from being able to vote and participate in the process. And um, subject to a statewide referendum, the voters of Florida decided to return the vote to formerly incarcerated persons. Uh, and quickly thereafter, the governor and other Republican um, uh, leaders in the state uh, figured out a way to undercut the intention of that law, which was now to say that formerly incarcerated persons could not be returned to the rolls until they had paid any fines and fees that were outstanding uh, as part of their incarceration. And for some people, this can amount to $10,000. There are some people that amounts to $50,000. Uh, there are some people who just don't know and can't be sure, frankly, what the fines and fees are. Um, and so uh, LDF and the ACLU and a number of organizations came together to challenge uh, this practice. And we've been in and out of court for some time. Uh, we received a, a not great ruling from the state Supreme Court that these fines and fees are part of the sentence. Uh, but we did receive a, you know, a decision that wasn't the home run we would have wanted, but one that at least said for our clients that they had uh, sufficiently demonstrated that they were unable to pay their fines and fees, and so they should be admitted to the rolls. But you still have many, many others uh, who now have to go through a process of making that showing, and many, many others who can't. Uh, one of the things that's true that I think people don't recognize about the fines and fees issue is that um, many uh, formerly incarcerated persons are nervous about whether they know what the fines and fees fully are, because they're relying on the state to tell them what they owe. 
Um, and of course, when you uh, register to to vote, you're signing and you're making those representations under penalty of perjury. No one wants to be in the position of simply because they've tried to register to vote, uh, violating the law and potentially being sent back to prison. So the answer really is to not make them have to pay uh, these fines and fees rather than have them jump through these hoops and face the uncertainty uh, in some instances uh, for, for those who don't know whether the fines and fees that have been assigned to them are accurate. So, so to be simplistic about this, uh, what the state is doing or has done is it sentences you to uh, a term in jail and it says, in addition, you owe us all this money. It could be court costs and fees. Court costs mm-hmm. and fees. And if and and then it conditions your right to vote upon paying that back. Mm-hmm. But if it's a big sum of money and you've just got out mm-hmm. from prison, you can't pay that back. And they well knew that when they when they uh, chose to try and undercut the the referendum in this way. I mean, it, to me, this is one of the cases that is just makes you have to pause and really understand the moment that we're in in this country, uh, in which not only are forces prepared to keep people who should be voting, who are citizens of this country and who paid their debt to society by spending time in prison and who are released uh, and trying to live uh, as positive citizens. But it's also undermining the will of a majority of the voters of the state that made the decision to return the vote to formerly incarcerated persons. That's how that's how desperate uh, forces have become to undercut, you know, full democracy and citizenship for portions of our of our population. The same was true with the Texas voter ID law when it was clear that, you know, there was a real effort to figure out what were the forms of ID that African-Americans and Latinos were unlikely to have. I mean, uh, the thing that's always gotten me about that law is you could not use uh, a student ID mm-hmm. from, say, Prairie View A&M, which is a predominantly black uh, school in Texas. State school. State mm-hmm. school. State state college. You couldn't use a an ID if you were uh, an employee of the city of Houston, uh, the government issued ID that Houston gave you, but you could use a concealed carry permit. And, yeah. you know, there's no question why they picked those things. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with our guest, Cheryl and Eiffel, the director, counsel and president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund about the LDF docket. And Cheryl, when you mentioned fines and fees, I think this is something that's been a new concentration maybe Mm. in the last 10 years Mm. for civil rights groups. Do you want to talk more broadly about the fines and fees concern? Yeah, I think one of the the I think it's it's worth remembering that what I think brought national attention to this issue was Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, after Mike Brown was killed uh, by a police officer in Ferguson uh, in 2014, uh, the Justice Department uh, undertook an investigation of the Ferguson Police Department and of the individual officer. And while they uh, did not believe that they could bring federal charges against the individual officer, they did discover that the town was doing what it has now been revealed more widely many towns are doing, which is essentially using fines and fees um, as uh, a way to kind of keep the town going um, and imposing posing on poor people, predominantly African-Americans, uh, by racial profiling, by uh, the disparate application of, of harsh laws that require fines and fees, requiring them to pay these amounts uh, into the, the city or the town coffers as part of a kind of criminal justice apparatus. 
Um, and increasingly, many uh, civil rights groups have been able to really drill down and uh, pay attention to this issue and bring really fantastic litigation. The Art City Defenders, uh, the Civil Rights Corps, uh, they're just extraordinary organizations that have been challenging fines and fees in uh, Louisiana and Missouri and other places. And of course, the Supreme Court recently addressed uh, some of the fines and fees issue uh, issues last last uh, term in terms of the Eighth Circuit. Eighth, Amendment ban on fines and fees and whether it applies to the states. Um, but this is this is one of those issues, and this is what civil rights law does. You know, it peels back the reality that lies beneath the surface for most people who uh, don't end up involved with the law or who are not victims of, of civil rights discrimination. And it shows us what the flaws are in our democracy. And I, I think especially at this moment in our country, it's vitally important that we recognize the debt we owe, uh, actually, to civil rights law and litigation, which provides us that window into seeing what the flaws are in our democracy and really is the early warning system if we choose to listen. You know, when we talk about fines and fees, I bet a lot of our listeners are they're, they're hearing places like Louisiana and Missouri, and they're thinking not here. But in fact, in Santa Clara County, if you go to the municipal courts, what you'll find is that we have traffic fines. And if you can't pay the traffic fines, they increase and increase. And the docket there is full of low-income folk, many of them for whom English is not uh, a native language, that are really confronted with thousands of dollars of fines for things like out-of-date registration. They don't really have a chance of repaying. And what the county there does is it it allows you to do on the installment plan. Mm -hmm. But if you miss an installment, (laughs) you go way back down to the bottom. So just to note that this is really a pervasive problem and not just one in someone else's no, it's, state. It's like a it's like a it's like a municipal form of sharecropping where you can never get out of debt because these fines keep building up. You also have the circumstance in some instances where where you're arrested if you you know if you you're pulled over and it it turns out that you haven't paid the fines fines and fees uh, or you lose your driver's license yeah. which makes you un, unable to actually engage in your livelihood to be able to make the money to pay the fines and fees. So it's a kind of a shell game. And then when you combine it with racial profiling, uh, African American Americans are basically used uh, like machines to keep alive uh, towns that, in in some instances, like like Ferguson, are very small uh, and have no other means of being able to pull in money, and so they put it on the backs of African Americans whose lives they they destroy with this process. Yeah, it's like a speed trap, but you can't obey the law and avoid the speed that's trap. Right. That's right, and that's a that's a serious that's a serious problem. Joe. Well, you know, I'm wondering on this, this is kind of the um, uh, uh, the, the fun doing the, the kind of very local uh, 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 local work that's so important. Uh, how about safeguarding the election to come in other ways? And maybe this is something that when we go back from the break, we can uh, pick up. Sure. Yeah, we'll be back with more from Sherilyn Eiffel, the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. Welcome back to Stanford Stanford Legal. Legal. We look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Joe? Pam? During the break, we were talking about the work that the fund has been doing in criminal justice. And I wonder 
in this next segment, if you take us through some of that and uh, describe some of the issues. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things I love most about the work that we do is how serious we are about the rule of law. And um, that's why I call civil rights work democracy work, because uh, that's really the coin of the realm for us. And one of the things we think is so important for us to continue to address is the role of racism in the criminal justice system. Uh, it is impossible to call your justice system legitimate if you allow it to be infected uh, by racial discrimination. And so much of our work is focused on this. This includes um, you know, the removal of, of uh, black people from juries, which continues to be a pervasive problem despite the Supreme Court's decision in the Batson case. Um, involves you know, racial profiling practices like stop and frisk, and we were involved in that litigation in New York City. Uh, and includes our death penalty work, including a client that we had on the, uh, a few years ago who was on death row, uh, whose case uh, we took to the Supreme Court. Um, the client uh, was charged with capital murder in Texas, uh, and his own attorney put on an expert witness who testified that our client was more likely to be dangerous in the future because he's black. Um, now, in Texas, you have to prove future dangerousness in order to be convicted of capital murder, and he was convicted of capital murder. Uh, and we labored on this case for years and years and years and got it to the United States Supreme Court, and we prevailed in the Supreme Court with a decision by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who, you know, who said that you know, our, our justice system punishes us for what we do and not who we are. Um, so that's vitally important to us to ensure that racism uh, doesn't infect the criminal justice system. But that's the kind of racism that you can see, right? The, you know, the witness said it. It's kind of it's kind of there. Uh, we're also interested in the in the more subtle forms of racial discrimination, the role of prosecutors in excluding black people from juries. Many people are aware of the Curtis Flowers case uh, that was decided in the Supreme Court last term. This is the man who was tried six times by the DA in the I believe Fifth Judicial District in Mississippi in Winona, Mississippi, uh, who has been the DA for 30 years and continues trying this uh, Mr. Flowers over and over again for a crime he most likely did not commit. Uh, every time there are blacks on the jury, he ends up with a hung jury and the prosecutor goes at it again uh, and continues to try and, and convict this man. The Supreme Court threw out uh, his conviction finally last year on the grounds that there was this flagrant violation uh, of Batson. And so uh, he was returned back to the county. Um, this prosecutor recused himself from the case, which is a good thing. But what we became really concerned about was the evidence that this prosecutor removes black people routinely from every jury uh, that he presides over in that county. And so just a few months ago, we filed suit on behalf of every black eligible juror uh, in the 5th Judicial District, uh, challenging uh, the DA's, um, Doug Evans' um, systematic pattern and practice of excluding black people from juries. That's what I mean when I talk about the kind of impact work we try to do. We try to pull the thread from uh, exposed discrimination uh, and then try to use it to make maximum impact on behalf of maximum people challenging systemic discrimination. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, about LDF's work. And Sherilyn, in addition to the, the litigation that has always been one huge piece of the Legal Defense Fund, the, mm -hmm. hence the words legal, legal. defense, <laughs> there's also the word educational yes. in the title. And LDF has a new and kind of exciting mm. Uh, additional arm, which is the Thurgood Marshall Institute. Do you want to talk a little bit about the work that that part of LDF is doing and how it ties in with your mission? Yeah, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, being at LDF was my dream job. Uh, but I always wondered why so many of us left the Legal Defense Fund to enter academia. 
And I thought I figured it out. Uh, which is that, you know, when you are doing civil rights litigation, you are learning such amazing things about the law, the way the law interacts in the lives of the people who are most vulnerable. Uh, it's almost more than you can fully absorb. Uh, and if you're a full-time litigator, there's not a lot of place to put your learning because um, you're you're turning through this litigation. And so many of us actually discover that we want to write. And what you will find many of us initially write about is the work that we were doing at LDF. So when I came back to LDF, I thought, you know, one of the uh, things that I thought was really important uh, for for the lawyers on staff in particular is to have the opportunity to learn and to have the opportunity to continue to explicitly learn while doing the work that we do. Uh, and I, the Thurgood Marshall Institute was an idea that had been batting around LDF for some years. Um, actually, an idea first uh, f- fully explored by the person who now is the director of our Thurgood Marshall Institute, Janelle Bird, who returned to LDF uh, last year. And uh, the institute was designed to give us a place to do our own research, to bring in fellows, uh, to uh, create a learning environment for our staff. And, you know, in putting it together, this new conception of the Thurgood Marshall Institute, I added some features that I thought was really were really important. One is a sabbatical for litigators who can um, propose, uh, you know, a project that they want to explore. It could be a piece of writing. It could be field research. And then to bring that back into LDF for us to think about how to use that work. It happened perfectly last year. We had an attorney who left to do some research about a subject that we had stumbled upon, which was the way in which... Um, the inability of many uh, low-income African-Americans who are homeowners to afford the exponentially increasing price of water has resulted in loss of home ownership. So we started to notice this in Flint, Michigan, in, in Detroit, in Baltimore. Uh, and she went off and did a sabbatical and came back and wrote a paper that was turned into an LDF report called Watercolor. And it revealed the um, strong correlation between the inability to pay water bills, which result in water tax liens, which then result in auctions and foreclosures of the homes of African-Americans. And just last month, we filed a suit against the city of Cleveland challenging their water tax lien practice that came out of uh, this process of study and the Thurgood Marshall Institute. We also bring people into our office to help us learn about things we don't know. Uh, We just had a session on algorithmic bias a few uh, weeks ago just to deepen our knowledge. We've been on a a one-year learning spree, and the Thurgood Marshall Institute allows us to shed everything for a minute. These are private meetings and have super smart lawyers admit what they don't know and learn from other people. There are some kinds of bias that have been around forever. The Batson problem you're talking about where prosecutors eliminate black jurors that's been around back to one of the few major civil rights cases LDF lost, which was the Swain against That's Alabama right. case. And then the court came back 30 years later and basically said, LDF, you were right. Mm-hmm. It violates the Constitution mm-hmm. to remove black people from juries. But there are constantly new forms yes. of bias arising. And I think you know the algorithmic bias comes from the fact that the way uh, artificial intelligence learns if you will mm-hmm. is by looking at current data That's sets right. mm-hmm. and if the current system is biased the ai will be biased as well oh no question about it the the best uh, example that i think is just you know very clear for people to understand is the the uh, algorithms or methods by which police departments decide where are hot spots in a city Right. And the hotspots are the places where they've made the most arrests, where they've you know, had to pull people over, where there have been the most you know, incidents of crime and so forth. 
Well, well, we just talked about stop and frisk. So think about a whole city in which uh, it has been revealed that police officers are unconstitutionally stopping tens of thousands making hundreds of thousands of stops that are unconstitutional. And yet that data is still in the NYPD's database. So when they're making decisions about hotspots, we're not cleaning out that database from all of those stops that they did in Stop and Frisk. They're actually forming the basis upon which current the current police department decides what are high crime areas, what are hotspots, and so forth. We've been talking uh, with Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the uh, NWE, ACP Legal Defense Fund uh, about uh, AI, about voting rights, about uh, uh, what happens on the ground when uh, you can't pay your water bill and you lose your home. If you're interested in these areas, uh, you've got a great website. I think just the story of how people in Cleveland are losing their homes is a compelling story. Thank you so much. Yeah, so check out NAACPLDF.org. And thank you for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the Sirius XM app.